So for the last trail of season three, our sponsors, Fourth Estate, have very kindly said that I can talk about my own book, which is coincidentally published by Fourth Estate. My book, How to Fail, Everything I've Ever Learned from Things Going Wrong, is part memoir, part manifesto, and has been inspired hugely by this podcast, my fabulous guests, and my incredible listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It has chapters on families, on dating, on surviving your 20s, on failing at anger, failing at relationships, failing at babies, and very importantly, failing at sport. It came from the heart and the gut. I loved writing it. I'm super nervous about it because it does feel quite exposing, but it is deeply honest and I really, really hope that you like it when you read it and that it makes you feel less alone. It is available to pre-order, so if you go to www.waterstones.com, I would be immensely grateful if you pre-ordered a copy. It really, really helps. And it is out in bookshops on the 4th of April. Thank you so much for listening. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Heyman Sunin is one of the most influential Zen Buddhist teachers in the world. His name means nimble wisdom, and his first book, The Things You Can Only See When You Slow Down, sold over 3 million copies and was translated into more than 30 different languages. Born in South Korea, Sunim originally travelled to America to study film, but found himself drawn instead into the spiritual life. Educated at Harvard and Princeton, He received formal monastic training in Korea and now has more than a million followers on Twitter where he shares practical and spiritual advice for dealing with life's daily challenges. In his second book, Love for Imperfect Things, Sunim turns his wisdom to the art of self-care, arguing that only by accepting yourself and the flaws that make you who you are can you have compassionate and fulfilling relationships with others. Failure is something we all experience, he writes. Each time we fail, we can learn from our mistakes and become a little wiser and more prudent. Heyman, it is such a delight to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Can I start by asking you what failure means to you? I think we are inevitably fail. (laughs) We will fail. The question is whether we can fail, you know, gracefully and also whether we can learn something from that experience. So I think I had a lot of failures in my life. (laughs) Yes. Do you think that humans find it difficult, especially a modern human, because we live in an age of perfection or seeming perfection on social media, do you think we find it difficult to embrace the concept of failure and mistakes? 
Yes, you know, sometimes we have very high expectations, you know, about ourselves. Then the bar is way too high, and we are setting ourselves up for failure, you know, sometimes. So, especially when you're looking at the photos of your friends on a social media, they are having a wonderful time. And how come I'm not having a wonderful time? I remember one time I was I went to a beautiful mountain area in Vancouver, Canada, but. To have the wonderful photo there, you know, I have to climb about four hours, and then I have to fight with the uh, flies. There was a lot of flies, you know, like running, buzzing around. So, and then when I got there, I was so hungry. Uh, <laughs> however, the photo <laughs> looks fantastic. You know, I look happy. You know, against the backdrop of beautiful mountain. So, you know, for those who are just looking at the photo, they will think, "Oh, he's having a wonderful time," and how come I'm not having a wonderful time? Actually, whenever you look at another, you know, friend's photo, remind yourself that maybe you know they've been hungry. Maybe they have to fight off with the you know flies. I thought your book was absolutely beautiful, and I love the concept of embracing your flaws as part of yourself and part of your connection with the universe. Where did the initial motivation for writing that book come from? Oh, uh, because when I first became a monk, I thought that I would just have to check into Buddhist monastery and then meditate and then become enlightened like the Buddha. <laughs> However, you know, after living in a monastery for a while, I realized that you know one of the obligation we have to do was to participate in Sunday service, and then after that, we are often asked to have a tea with my our you know lay people. So I ended up having tea with many many. People and they start, you know, talking about their, you know, personal problems, you know, problems with their husband or wife or children, the stress at work and things like that. And then, as I was listening, you know, I didn't have at that time I didn't have a whole lot of life experience because I was still in my twenties, but I, you know, was willing to listen. And attentively and compassionately, and then they told me how much it really helped them, and so that got me, you know, very interested in helping other people and cultivating compassion through that work. So that's what I've been doing. And then, as part of my work, I was asked to write a book. You know, and then my book became really popular. So I realized that maybe I can write a second book. You know, which is how do we deal with some of our flaws and how can we, you know, overcome like a disappointment or how to forgive other people. You know, how to reach out to other people and express love. So that's what motivated me to write the second book. Can I ask, as someone who tries and Often fails to meditate. <laughs> Do you ever find it difficult to meditate as a Buddhist monk? Oh yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, you know, if you realize, if you become mindful that, oh, I just fail. That is meditation, you know. <laughs> Just whether you become aware of what's happening in your mind, that is the whole point of meditation. It is not to get to somewhere, some kind of a peaceful, you know, state. Rather, whether you can become aware of what is really happening in my mind clearly, that is precisely what you are supposed to do. That's fascinating. And is the next step 
to observe that you're thinking, you're failing, but not to attach emotion to it. Right. Yeah. If you're attaching some, you know, emotion or expectation, then you become mindful. Oh, I'm expecting. You know. Oh, I'm expecting something wonderful to happen, but it's not happening. You know, I feel like failure. Oh, I, I, I now I know that I'm thinking that I feel like failure. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you see yourself objectively and non-judgmental way, and that's the meditation. Well, let's talk about expectation because it ties into one of your failures, which is the time that you were at a Zen retreat and you were given a task which involved setting out the table. And an older monk asked you at the time that you were setting out the table actually to go and sweep the outside steps. And you felt that this was very inconsiderate of him. And therefore, you had a sort of expectation of the task being onerous. Can you tell us what happened next and what you learned? from? Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad that you liked that episode from my book, Love for Imperfect Things. It's interesting because... As a junior monk, I was very busy, you know, <laughs> because during lunch and dinner and breakfast time, we have to go and, you know, start preparing for our meals. So we were really busy as a team. However, the senior monk came up to us, to me actually, and then he said, why don't you go and then sweep the stairs? So I was quite upset, you know, because I was thinking to myself, you know, couldn't he see that uh, we are working really hard? You know, why did he have to add more? more extra you know, work to us. You know, if he found that the stair, it is a problem, then he should have, he, it has to be, why couldn't he do it, you know? However, you know, while I was just thinking about these things, you know, internally, my mind became very negative and very unhappy. You know, I felt like a victim of this particular situation. So after finishing up the preparing the meal, I went outside and started sweeping the you know stair. And I realized that it takes about three minutes. You know, <laughs> it was not an onerous job. You know, I could have done it without this internal negative chatter. Yeah. And so it was almost the internal negative chatter that was making the task seem worse. Yes, yeah, it seems, I felt like I'm a, I was a victim of this situation. However, you know, realize that whenever we feel very unhappy, it is because we are resisting to what is. Mm. You know, whenever we resist to what is, then of course we'll feel very unhappy. The trick is in how do we turn our mind and then try to accept the things as it is. Did you ever tell the older monk about this realization that you'd come to sweeping the steps? No, I was just too embarrassed to talk to him about it. Uh, I was supposed to be mindful and become, you know, cultivate, you know, serenity, but I was like, you know, complaining within my mind. There's another episode in your book, actually, when you're also on a retreat and you're sitting opposite the same monk for dinner every night and he doesn't engage with you and you try to engage with him and he doesn't give you anything back and then on the final night he ends up being smiley and friendly and you realize that actually I was projecting all of this negativity about what he might be thinking of you. Do you think that we're too worried about what other people think of us? Absolutely, yeah. We often think about the worst scenario. You know, this person may not like me or maybe there is something wrong with me, you know. However, it could be, it might have nothing to do with you, you know. So we have to carefully observe, you know, what is really going on? What is really true? Is this my projection or is it reality? Do you think that if we live our lives according to what other people think, then we fail to be ourselves? 
Yeah, the first chapter of my book, I talk about self-care. I was very meek and quiet kid because I was meek and quiet and introverted. <laughs> you know, everybody, especially my parents, you know, they say, oh, be a good boy, you know, listen to what I say, you know, my father. And then I wanted to be a good student, so I listened to what my teacher said. So I was very obedient, agreeable student uh, while putting down my own particular needs, you know. And then when I went to graduate school in the United States, we had to do a lot of group work. And then because I was a meek and you know, agreeable, I ended up doing really difficult work all the time, you know. So I was very stressed and overworking. So I asked my, you know, a friend who was a senior to me at that time, and he told me that we should be nicer, be kinder to ourselves first then you can be kinder to other people, you know? I think that is absolutely true. We have to be kinder to ourselves, and then we can become kinder to the world. Just like when we are in the airplane, uh, we are advised to take the oxygen mask first and then assist other people later. I think that it also the same lesson can apply to our daily life. And is it difficult to know oneself if you are like that, if you are a child who wants to please others and who does well at school and who is conscientious, because I think that was my experience, was that I didn't really know who I was or what I wanted. I knew what other people wanted and I was good at meeting their needs. Right, right. You know, unfortunately, the school does not teach us, you know, how to become self-aware about who we are, you know. Only after we graduate from high school, then we slowly begin to understand under what circumstance I thrive, you know, under what circumstance I don't do as well, you know. So getting to know ourselves, it's a journey. But once you get to know yourself clearly, I think you feel a little more confident and you can actually have a better relationships. You know, oftentimes I, I remember, you know, one of the people that I met in Korea, uh, she's so nice, so kind you know, all the time. And yet when it becomes just too much, you know, rather than saying no to them, she would just cut off, you know, disappear. In Korean, you know, we have this expression, I am taking submarine. You know? I love that expression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you go under, under the water yeah. and nobody can reach you. <laughs> so she would just disappear for like two weeks, three weeks. And when we are wondering, you know, what's happening, you know, and nobody knew how stressful she was. So rather than, you know, you know, making yourself suffer in that fashion, I think we should be respectful to our body, to our mental state. And if it's too much, then you should say, it is a little bit too much for me. I think some people listening might worry that taking care of yourself and self-care sounds very indulgent, almost like you're spoiling yourself, particularly in Britain where we don't like to be nice to ourselves. <laughs> What's the difference between self-care and self-indulgence? Hmm. I think if you are not nice to yourself, oftentimes what happens is you do have those kind of stress ended up accumulating within your body and within your psyche. So what happens is even though you don't mean to be mean, <laughs> but you end up being mean to other people, you know, because you don't know how to process your stress. So doing the self-care is not selfish or self-indulgent, in my opinion. It is a really important step for you to have a good relationship with people around you. 
I find it fascinating that you went to America initially to study film. What's your favourite film of all time? Do you have one? Oh. <laughs> this is a terrible journalist question. <laughs> I really like A River Runs Through It. You know, I talk about that movie. I love that film so much. I know. I, I really like it. There's something about the movie. I think I, I even talked about it in my preview and the preface of my book. How you know you can still love somebody even though you don't understand the person fully. You know, mm-hmm. um, this was profound. You know, teaching for me. You know, you can still love somebody even though you may not understand the person wholly. You do say this beautiful thing in your book about sometimes an act of love is leaving someone to their own devices and giving them space. Right, right. Sometimes we just want to be left alone. (laughs) Yeah, giving us, please give us some space. You know, that can be a great gift that they've been wanting. So rather than trying to go there and fix everything, you should have more trust in their own ability to get better. I mean, A River Runs Through It, also beautiful to look at. The scenery, the Montana scenery is stunning in it as is Brad Pitt. But that's, that's my stuff. So right, um, right. going back to your failures, Heyman. So when you went to America, you were drawn to the spiritual life and then you ended up applying for various professorial positions. And one of the ones that you applied to, you failed to get. Tell us about that. Right. There was one major failure <laughs> that I felt at the time because I was fairly good when I first applied for professor job. I applied to 20 different schools. And then out of 20, I was invited to do conference interview, like 12 or something. And then out of 12, you know, six or seven, you know, university invited me to the final interview, which is campus interview. And out of six or seven schools, uh, there was one particular school that I really wanted to get a job, you know. It was a really good school. And so I really prepared hard. However, it turns out to be the first interview that I had to do. You know, they asked me to come really, you know, early. Of course, because I haven't done a whole lot of job interview by then, this was my first experience. And so to my mind, I thought, if I just do my best, you know, if I just show them how dedicated I am, you know, how hard I've been, you know, preparing for this job, maybe they will like me, you know, that was my idea. However, in the process, you know, they asked me a couple of questions. And then the next day in the 4.30 in the morning or something, I woke up (laughs) and I realized that, oh, I'm not going to get this job, you know, I realized, and I realized why I'm not going to get this job. The reason was, I was only thought, you know, concentrating on how hard I prepare, not so much on what they were looking for, you know. So the departure of my concern, it should have been from their side, not from how I was feeling. So they are looking for not somebody who's going to work hard, but somebody who already had all those qualifications that they were looking for. So from the second interview onward, I tried to study hard, you know, what they are looking for and how I can actually satisfy their own needs. And do you take rejection personally it sounds I mean you managed to think it through in your head but do you have that sort of personal (laughs) right right this is very good question too like when we are not very experienced we are not very good at if you don't have a a lot of failure you know experience uh, when that happened you 
take it very personally, and it, it can be very painful. However, as you have more failure experience, you know, you learn not to take it so personally. So I got hired, you know, later on, became a professor, and then I was part of the selection committee like two years later. So we had a job opening in our own college, and we have to hire a new person. But the whole process, I realized that this is really, really specific. You know, we have a, like a six or seven different professor and wanting different kind of particular professor in mind. You know, somebody who is doing a women's study, you know, like the, she prefers somebody who knows something about women's study and somebody who's doing historical approach. And this person you know, prefers somebody who's a historical approach. It is very much random, you know, so you can not you know say that just because they didn't choose me i am the failure you know that is not the case my first book i talked about even if you are you know sting or james taylor if what they are looking for is pavarotti then you're not gonna get it you know you're not gonna get the job but it doesn't mean that your music you know is not good you know your music is still wonderful it's just that it didn't fit I love that. Thank you. I should just mention, by the way, that we're recording this at your publisher's office and there, because it's London, there's lots of building work outside. Right, right, right. So if anyone can hear a vague drilling sound, that's what it is. And can that be applied, Heyman, to romantic rejection, to someone saying... Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Each person, they might have different preferences, right? And then depending on what kind of family you had, you know, what kind of sibling and dynamic you had, I'm sure you have different preference, you know, when it comes to your romantic partner. Like the way you don't like everyone, (laughs) and the other person has every right to reject you. It doesn't mean that you are not good enough, you know, it's just that it wasn't a good fit. Are there some people you don't like? Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there are many politicians that I don't like. Yes. (laughs) Is part of your spiritual practice sending love to those people? Oh, yeah. The, The part of my spiritual practice is to understand them. You know, we ended up having a hard time because we want to change people. We want to change our partner. We want to change the thinking or behavior of our, of our children or of our co-worker, you know, for instance. However, they don't change. <laughs> it's often they resist, you know, the more you want them to change. So rather than, you know, demanding this change, maybe we should approach and thinking, oh, maybe I should understand where this person, uh, that particular attitude or thinking is coming from. If you understand, and what happens is your heart becomes softened and it has more opening. And so even though there are some differences, you feel as though I can take the differences. Talking of hearts, you founded something which has my favourite name of anything ever. You founded the School of Broken Hearts in Seoul. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So with the success of my first book, I thought maybe I should do something very meaningful to the society. And so I looked into what sort of problems people are you know, struggling with nowadays. And I realized that a lot of problems are mental, psychological. So I offer a class for people who just lost their family member. For example, that was like one of the earliest you know, courses that I offer. And then people who just diagnosed with cancer, 
people who just went through very difficult divorce, people who just got laid off from work, young people who've been looking for a job but could not find a job of their dream, you know. So I offered these kind of courses. And then oftentimes, you know, people feel that I am doing it alone. You know, I'm all isolated and very lonely. However, you know, when that course was open, they will all come and start sharing their story. And they realize that they don't have to do it alone. And in this very safe and supportive environment. And I remember, you know, in the course on a person who just diagnosed with cancer, woman in her 20s, it involved a part of like a dance therapy. So they would dance a little bit. They expressed their, you know, fear and frustration and anger. However, this one woman, uh, she would just dance and then she re would retreat to a corner of the room and she would start, you know, crying and she was you know, yelling, like, I'm, I'm only 22 years old. I didn't do anything wrong. How come I have this? This is so unfair, you know, things like that. And then, you know, women in the mid-40, like about her mother's age, listening to her, and she would go there and then start hugging her, you know, almost like an angel, you know, descending. And then another woman in her 60s would come down and then start hugging her. So, and then everybody, including myself, you know, we go and hug everyone. And we just cry, 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 you know, for three, five minutes. But this was a very empowering experience, you know. We felt like we don't have to do it alone, you know. So I, you know, start doing this school of broken heart, and now we have like sixty, you know, therapists, you know, working together in two different city in South Korea. Yeah, that's so wonderful, Hyunmin. Yeah, thank you. I want you to bring it to London. Yeah, I would love it. You know, some people told me, "Are you going to do it in other places?" <laughs> Does it ever exhaust you? At the end of a day, doing that kind of therapy or keeping your one million Twitter followers engaged and giving advice and taking on people's pain, do you ever get exhausted at the end of the day? Oh, when you are, you know, deeply connected to other people and really, you know, your heart is open and compassionate and you really worry about them, things like that, then you don't feel so much exhausted. I become exhausted when I feel a sense of disconnections, you know, a sense of I begin to worry about my own, like a selfish, you know, kind of thing. Then I begin to feel a little more exhausted. So when our heart is open, I think uh, there's a lot of energy, you know, latent energy waiting for us to use. So you did eventually get your professorship and you became incredibly successful on the man we know today. And your third failure details a time when you were very, very busy helping other people and your mother became ill, but she hid her illness from you. And when you found out, you had a sort of realization. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, that was difficult, <laughs> very difficult, because I felt like, you know, I was going around, you know, different places and trying to offer help. However, I neglected my mother. <laughs> and I was very, you know, sad and shocked. And when she told me that she was having, he, you know, my father, it was basically my father who called me and told me about this whole situation. So I dropped everything and I flew to, you know, see my mother. And I spent about one month, you know, with her. I regret that I didn't take better care of my parents. And then I remember my mom, 
like even I was doing it, I had to go give a talk, and then my talk involved, you know, sending this good wish, you know, blessing energy to the people we love. So I was sending this energy of love to my mother, and then in that moment, I just wanted to text my mom, "I love you, mom. I miss you. I love you." Something like that. And my mom, like reading it, she really cry, cry, cry because I rarely say <laughs> Asian men. We rarely say to our mother, you know. I love you. It's kind of uh, rare things, but you know, I really—that's what I wanted to say. And then, while reading that, my mom felt, "Oh, I should be better. You know, I should have more strength, and and I might be able to go through this." So, you know, about like two months later, my mom become much better now, and she doesn't have a whole lot of problems. But uh, at that time, I felt like you know I was neglecting my own parent. I think a lot of people feel that they fail as parents. They feel very guilty that they're not giving enough time to their children. But you don't often hear children saying that they feel they're failing as children, and that there's a reciprocal nature to that. So, do you feel that you're failing better now at being a son? Now, I think you know my parents. Ever since that episode, you know, I am spending more time with my parents. So I feel a lot better about the situations. I think it is because we have a tendency to love our.、Um, in Korea, we say that we love our. The love is usually descending down. That's what we say. So it's very easier for us to love our own children, but it's a little bit difficult to love our. I mean, the the same kind of attention we give it to our children, we don't give that to our own parents. You know, that's what. We say, but it is natural, you know. <laughs> However, I think we have to just do our best, you know, given the circumstance. Do you have brothers and sisters? Oh yeah, I have one younger brother. Okay,、ah. and what does he do? Oh, he's a high school teacher. Oh,、yeah. so you're both teachers in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really love my brother. Yeah. Were you a nice older brother when you were little? Yes, I was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because I was, you know, four years older than him, so we didn't fight much. You know, I was so much bigger and older, and he was very small and weak. So I had to protect him. So even though he's, you know, fine, he's adult and he's doing everything really. You know, there's no problem. I have so much love for him, and I think he knows that. <laughs> You mentioned that Asian men find it difficult to say "I love you, Mum." <laughs> America is known to be a culture of expressiveness and in emotion. Was it difficult for you when you first went to America to get used to that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was very difficult, especially the culture of hug. You know, we rarely hug <laughs> in Korea, <laughs> so. When people were giving a hug, especially you know between close friends, as a sign of affection, I was a little bit taken back. You know, I didn't know how to respond. But now I enjoy it. You know, actually, you know, it's, I feel very close to friends. I think you know, like anything else,、uh, you get better at it.、Mm. Can you describe to us an enlightened mind? How would you describe it?、Uh, enlightened mind is the mind in which you become aware. Of what is happening right now, right here, and knowing that you are not the let's say imperfections, but the being who's aware of the imperfections. Okay, say that again. <laughs> yeah, 
you know, when we see our own imperfections, we automatically just assume that, identify ourselves with imperfections. However, if you just look closely in your own awareness and awareness itself, then you realize that your awareness is that which is aware of your imperfections. But this awareness is not tainted or polluted by your own, your own imperfections. It is ever-present, free of those imperfections, and yet it has the quality of knowing and quality of love. So there's a you that exists apart from your thoughts. Yes, yes. And then we often think that thought it is there, all there is, but uh, thought arises out of awareness, this awareness of freedom, awareness of full potential. It does not have any sound or any quality in it, and therefore we overlook it very quickly. However, uh, if you become mindful of your own awareness, then you see that it is everywhere, you know, in, inside our body, but also outside of us. In that it was never born, and therefore it's not going to die. That's a beautiful concept. In the particular climate that we now live, so 2019, what in your experience through all of your travels and all of the people that you've helped is the number one most common problem that people come to you with seeking advice for? Hmm. Like one of the very typical you know, problems that they are feeling is overall like anxiety, you know, anxiousness about uncertainty you know, of our you know, future. And so they would end up imagining the worst scenario, you know, worst possible scenario. What if I get laid off? You know, <laughs> what if I cannot provide for our family? You know, what if I get sick? You know, all these anxious, you know, thoughts popping up. Whenever you feel anxious, my advice is that we can counteract that anxious thought with another thought. You know, this thought, you just tell it to your anxious thought that maybe you can repeat after me. Okay. Dear my thought. Dear my thoughts. I will worry about it. I will worry about it. When it actually happens. <laughs> when it actually happens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need to say that more. Yeah, because, you know, oftentimes 95%, you know, it's completely useless, you know, to worry about this because it will never happen. Or even if it happens, there's nothing, absolutely nothing we can do about it. So why do we worry? It's so interesting that because I worried a lot as a child. And I think I developed a way of thinking about the world, which was if I think the worst, then I'll be pleasantly surprised if it doesn't happen. And if the worst happens, I'll be prepared for it. But it's only relatively recently that I've had a shift in that thinking. Right. Exactly as you say, there's no point. I will expend my emotional energy when it comes to it. Right. You know, while worrying about it, you ended up, you know, filling your mind with negativities. Why do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Do you believe that if we fill our minds with positivity, that has a positive effect? You know, so many people talk about positive visualization and mood boards and imagining the best. Do you think that works? Absolutely. You know, our mind does not have any kind of form or shape, like awareness that I talked about. However, like water, you know, depending on which kind of shape of cup you use, so the water ended up taking that shape. If you pour it into a negative thought, it's going to end up taking that negative shape. But if you are pouring into positive thought, then it's going to take that you know, shape of positivity. And Heyman, are you writing another book at the moment? 
Actually, uh, I have a third book just came out in Korea, and now it's been number one for the last eight weeks. So let's see how it goes. <laughs> When you write a book, do you just let the mood come to you, or do you? Is there a strategy for writing a best-selling book? <laughs> oh, like my strategy is to talk to other people as much as I can. So I write something that is really applicable to their. Life. I don't want to write some theoretical books that has nothing to do with reality. There's this wonderful quote in your second book, "Love for Imperfect Things," which says it, you're talking about relationships, and you say the person you are destined for will not suddenly appear one day, knocking on your door, like in the French film Amelie. One cannot become president without campaigning, even someone with a great chance of winning. A good relationship will never come about without work. And I love that so much because I think so many of us develop this romantic narrative from movies and from books, and we think that the right thing will just fall into our lap, and then that's it forever. But that's not the case. <laughs> it rarely happens. I mean, sometimes it ha- it does happen, but just by waiting and waiting, you know, this perfect person will not appear. <laughs> You have to put yourself out there, you know. Let people know that I I would like to date people, and then you will meet many, many, you know, candidates. But you will surely will fail, you know. Yes. <laughs> However, you know, at some point you will, you know, hit it off. You will find somebody. And I think it's important to know that it's not unromantic to work at things. That doesn't diminish the romance of it. Work can sometimes be very romantic. Oh yes, and you are doing it because you care about that person. You know, you are willing to go and make um, you know dish that you are not familiar with, but because you are doing it because you love this person. What do you do when you're feeling anxious? First, I become aware that I'm anxious, <laughs> and when I become aware, I'm not in anxious anxiety. You know, I'm stepping outside anxiety, and then because uh, anxiousness can be residing in my body, so I would either you know take a walk and do some yoga or take a deep breath. You know, to try to relax my body. Hey, Min, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I would like to ask you, before you go, what one piece of advice? What's the one most important thing you would like the listeners of this podcast to know? You know, whoever are listening to this podcast, you know, I want you to know that you are actually wiser than you think and stronger than you feel. You can get through whatever the difficulty you are having. So may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be peaceful, may you be always protected wherever you go. Hey Min Soonim, thank you so so much. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to season three of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. If you enjoyed it, please, please do go to iTunes to rate and review us, preferably with a five-star review. Not that I'm picky. It really does help other people to find us, and it helps our rankings in the charts. I would love to see you at one of the How to Fail live events that's going to come up in springtime. And until then, keep failing.